Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us in this rather dim, dingy basement room on a beautiful sunny day. I promise you it will be worthwhile because this is an incredibly fascinating and current topic, attitudes to immigration. And we have three leading experts on the subject with all very different perspectives. So I'm, I really think we're going to have an exciting and informed discussion. It's quite an informal setup. We're going to have five minutes from each of our speakers, chance for them to uh, feed back to each other. Um, I might ask a couple of questions and open to the floor, so you're going to have plenty of time to ask your questions. As I've said before, if anyone wants to have a drink while we're listening to the presentations, do help yourself at the back. I'm going to ask our three eminent speakers, Eric Kaufman, Christopher Ostrom vidge did I say that right? Yes, you did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Anna Killick, just to introduce themselves a little bit and what they do at the outset, and then they're going to speak for five minutes. I'm going to start with Eric. Well, I, uh, some of you I'm a professor of politics here at Birkbeck, and I run the uh, master's program in nationalism and also teach on the population uh, change module. Um, and so I've got an interest, current research is on uh, politics of populism and immigration, so kind of a fit with today's topic. And then you're going to start talking. Oh, okay. I thought, did we want to all? Okay, fine. I thought we were all going to introduce us. Okay, fine. Um, yeah, and sorry to be using uh, PowerPoint. They say PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. So this is, uh, okay. Um, but just to sort of lay out a little bit of the, of the case in, in some data, and, and yes, this, this is large-scale survey data, which I think is actually quite important for this kind of a debate, particularly around populism, and I'm just talking first about Brexit, just to show you uh, the strength of some of the relationships here between, in this case, attitudes to immigration and voting Brexit. So what we see here is if you are most opposed to allowing more immigrants, if you say many fewer should be admitted, um, you've got about a 0.8-80% type probability of having voted to leave, whereas if you say many more should be admitted, your chance is about zero. So that's kind of an 80-point gap, which is very, very noticeable and, and drives many of the models of populist voting. Those different colored lines are different income bands, and you can see just how narrow, actually, the difference is between the poor. Yes, the poorest people are more likely to have voted to leave than the richest, but that's only a 10 or 15 point gap compared to an 80 point gap. An illustration of how much more important the immigration issue is than, say, uh, an economic characteristic, whether you're rich or poor, in terms of whether you voted to leave. Uh, and it's very similar in the case of Trump. It's actually even tighter in the case of Trump, whether it's really no effect of income at all between the rich and poor, just among white Americans. Whereas if you say immigration should be increased a lot, your chance of having voted Trump is about 0.1. Whereas if you say reduce a lot, it's around over 0.8. So the same relationship showing just how important the immigration attitudes are for predicting uh, a vote for right-wing populists. Uh, in the West, this is the key Relationship. So I just wanted to sort of show that graphically and to show how relatively unimportant some of the economics are, particularly around income. But this is true also for unemployment and views of the economy. Um, just in terms of, we, we're talking about opinion about immigration, but there's a very important distinction to be made between attitudes to immigration and how important you think the immigration is. You could be opposed to letting more immigrants into the country, but your top issue could be health care, and immigration could be five or six. 
What we're seeing in, and this is true in nine out of 10 West European countries, uh, is that as net migration or immigration numbers have increased, um, it's not that people who were pro-immigration become anti-immigration, but people who are already in favor of less immigration, which tends to be the majority of most European publics, within that majority of the population, the number of people saying immigration is my number one or two issue rises. And in this is a, a, a measure of that. This, this line in gray, which you may or may not be able to see, rising after 1997 uh, with the Blair Labor government up to uh, 2014, 2015, just before the Brexit vote. Along with that, the proportion of people who say immigration is the most important issue facing the country is rising along with it. Um, and that relationship, again, in a, a recent paper shown in nine out of 10 European countries. So it's this, what's called salience or importance of the issue of immigration, which is rising within the group of people who are already disposed not to like more immigration. So it's that rising salience that really draw, which then subsequently opens space for the populist voting. And I won't go into all the details of this chart, which is from Nate Bresnow, published on the LSE uh, politics blog. But essentially, there is a correlation between a rising foreign-born share of the population within a West European country over time and the rising vote share for the populist right. And that's mediated by this salience of immigration question. So I just want to sort of emphasize how important, how absolutely important the question of immigration attitudes, well not attitudes, salience is for explaining the populist phenomenon in the West and the right-wing populist phenomenon. Not the left-wing, not Podemos and Corbyn and, and so forth, but for the right-wing populism in the Western countries, this is absolutely crucial. Um, and then, just to say something about, okay, we, we can say, oh, you know, immigration seems to be driving the populism phenomenon, but what's driving immigration? Couldn't that be something to do with economics? And I think, you know, there is certainly some input from economics, but, a you know, the research consensus, I would say, is that certainly personal economic circumstances, whether immigration makes me richer or poor, is not uh, generally seen as a driver of immigration. And this is from major reviews of the literature. Um, and we see this relationship time and time again. What does seem to correlate best with opinion on immigration uh, are deep-seated psychological values around terms such as right-wing authoritarianism, status quo conservatism. These are terms that social psychologists use. These are based in uh, fundamental value orientations, which social psychologists would argue have a strong hereditary component. That doesn't mean genetic, but it does mean both early childhood socialization and heredity. So these deep-seated values, for example, and one of the classic ones is around um, child rearing. You know, do you favor, and, and I probably mentioned this to some of you already, but the question, is it more important for a child to be considerate or well-mannered? If you know the answer to that, you know about four times as much about whether someone voted Trump or Brexit than you do if you know their, a person's income. So that's an indication of how these deep-seated psychological values are important in driving uh, opposition to immigration. This is just a mapping that psychologists do. Uh, and the, the question here is, are there too many foreigners in France? I strongly agree. Uh, and you can see that different parts of the map are lighting up in different colors. And this, these are, this is a map of many values questions. And you can see they cluster into what's known uh, according to cultural dynamics, they label that group the settlers up in the top right. Some would call this authoritarianism. 
or a status quo conservatism. That lights up, whereas the people who are very opposed to the idea that there are too many foreigners in France are these people who emphasize creativity, adventure, stimulation, all these other things which are more associated with what they call the pioneers. Um, and this kind of seems to be the emerging divide politically. Uh, last slide, uh, I promise, uh, which is to say that just to emphasize that the numbers really do matter, and I think we would be kidding ourselves if we think that it's all about skills. Uh, and this is a question which I'm not going to go into great detail about. We asked on a survey experiment, and we're what we're trying to do is get at the question of whether, okay, if we keep immigration at its current level, say in Britain, of 275,000, and we raise the skill share, do you prefer that, or do you want us to cut immigration but that's going to lower the skill share substantially, you get about a 50-50 split. Um, but once you add in phrases about what that's going to do to the white British share of the UK population going forward about 40 years, uh, and then you get a massive change in the numbers, and, and suddenly you get 75% you know, who want lower numbers, regardless of skill. And I think that tallies better with the, multi, you know, the, the uh, research that uses survey data and multiple regression methods, which tends to find that the cultural variables correlate best rather than the economic ones. So I will leave it there. Whoops, got all this garbage on here. Thank you, Larry. Lovely. So, I'll stand up here yes. too. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So I'm Christopher Ostrovich. I'm a reader in the philosophy department. I'm also a fellow at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. And the reason uh, I'm here today is that one thing that I'm interested in and that I'm working on is attitude change, particularly on um, politically controversial topics such as immigration, which is something I'm thinking about a lot right now. And I think um, in particular, I'm interested in what, what's driving the relevant attitudes some of the stuff that Garrett was talking about. And I think the, the, in the research, you see kind of two broad camps. We have on the one hand, the idea that what's driving it are some form of uh, economic factors. And I guess they roughly come in two kinds. Eric covered one, where you look specifically at economic characteristics of people, for example, how much they earn. The other one would be that people, whatever they might earn, might have economic concerns about immigration. And uh, so that's kind of one area. Um, and then the other one will be that they have another type of concern, namely cultural concerns. So that's also some of the stuff that Eric has been working on. And I think one other way to think about this is that one thing we know through a lot of the survey data is that people have, we know two things. One thing is that people have a variety of um, misconceptions about the scope and the impact of immigration. And the second thing is that people also uh, the majority of people in the UK have a preference for um, reduced numbers. So you might reason as follows, okay, well maybe it's the case that you have certain misconceptions about the economic impact of immigration and that drives a certain policy preference to see less immigration. Now the problem with that is though, in, um, we also know from the literature that correcting these misconceptions doesn't change the policy preference. So how do you explain that? Well, one way to explain it would be to say, well, it's not about economics, it's about cultural concerns, right? And that's why telling people that they might be wrong about how many immigrants there are or whatever characteristics or the impact they have on the economy, that's why it doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. So that's one explanation of what's going on, broadly along the lines of what Eric's been talking about. So currently I'm involved in a, um, a research project where we 
where we essentially say, well, not so fast, right? Maybe there is something about um, how the relevant evidence, so say the economic evidence, is communicated to people that is preventing it from going all the way through correcting misconceptions to change in policy preferences. Right? So, for example, one thing we're testing is maybe it's the case that people feel um, that they're being lectured and on that account, they stop listening, right? So they resent that type of one-way communication. Or maybe there's some more general bias at work, some, for example, bias in simulation of evidence or something, so we, we tend to easily take into account stuff that uh, coincides with what we already believe, evidence that goes against that, not so much. Right? Or finally, less flatteringly, maybe it's simply some form of, specifically some form of in-group bias that in its more extreme form would be some form of xenophobia. So what we do in experimental focus groups for this project is for each of these uh, three hypotheses, there are uh, interventions you can apply from social psychology to temporarily dial down the relevant tendency, whatever it might be. And then if you give people the evidence, so to speak, the economic evidence um, after that, then you see whether you see a shift in policy preferences. And if you do, then that might be reason to believe that what is going on might be something to do, not necessarily economics or culture, but something about how the relevant evidence is being communicated, right? Now, um, I don't have the answer yet because we're just analyzing the data, so that's a, it's a cliffhanger. So if we did this two months from now, I would be able to, to tell you all about it, but I can't, but anyway, stay tuned. Um, but I just wanted to mention one other thing um, before, I, before I sit down. So another thing I've been, thinking about more recently, hope to work more on in the near future, is, is really how useful this distinction between economic concerns and culture concerns are to begin with, right? So here's one way to think about it. So um, if you have discussions with people about immigration, particularly in focus group settings, but even in general, then they very quickly starts to, in a sense, stop being about immigration and start being about who deserves what. So in a sense, they very quickly develop into more general and deeply moral questions, right? And so, so you can see how this would play out, for example, so take one of the so in survey studies, one of the top economic concerns would be the fiscal impact of immigration, people worry that. <coughs> Immigrants come here and then they take out more than they put in, right? So you might think that if you start to unpack that concern on the part of some people, what's really going on is something more general about that maybe there are situations they believe under which you can prioritize uh, your fellow compatriots, right? Maybe it's a case that the moral duties that you owe to your compatriots are more... Um, demanding than the ones you owe towards um, people that are not your compatriots, foreigners, right? And if we think about it that way, then we find that once we start to unpack the relevant economic concern, we get into a certain moral domain where we have to start spelling out the relevant domain in terms that would traditionally be couched in, um, with reference to cultural considerations. So specifically, reference to the fact that maybe, um, maybe your fellow natives 
have greater moral rights to scarce national resources. Right? And I think if you, if you go down, if you go down that route of conceptualizing what's going on with this supposed dichotomy between the economic and the cultural, then you can nicely explain two sets of data. First of all, you can explain the data that telling people that there is a, a net positive fiscal impact of immigration. So we can set aside so the studies show that, well, studies show different things. Either it's a small, it's either it's a small positive or small negative or no difference. Right? But set that aside. Telling people that there is a small positive, if that indeed is the case, it would make sense that that wouldn't necessarily change their policy preferences if they feel that the relevant schemes involved, the relevant government schemes involved, are in some way um, to apply only to fellow natives, right? Then the relevant impact of foreigners is really beside the point, right? They feel that there is something wrong, even with foreigners being able to be in that domain to begin with, right? To potentially have an ability to claim from the relevant funds, right? So if the, if the kind of story that I've told holds, they can explain that. You can also explain on the other end, you can explain why people that are not particularly concerned about the fiscal impact of immigration would feel so simply because they might feel that, well, there's nothing special about the fiscal impact of immigration as such, right? A lot of things have an impact on the fiscal situation of a country. Maybe immigration is one of them, but there's lots of other stuff in the aggregate that people might care more about, right? And moreover, they might, on a more kind of deep moral level, feel that, and really who gets to claim here is a straightforward function of whatever need they have, irrespective of their nationality, right? You can explain that too with reference to fundamental moral commitments that they might hold. And more generally, I think also framing the relevant disagreements in these terms as kind of bottoming out, ultimately, not so much in economic stuff or culture stuff, but really moral stuff and moral commitments would have as an implication that what we're dealing with when people dis disagree deeply, as they do, uh, on these matters, people don't disagree about two potentially incomparable things, say economic stuff and cultural stuff, but really about one thing, namely moral stuff. They have a moral disagreement, a fundamental moral disagreement about these things. And if that's the case, moreover, that's great news if you're a philosopher, because then you might think maybe you can leverage this long tradition of uh, philosophizing about moral foundations, not the least in relation to immigration, for purposes of potentially not making these disagreements go away, because that's probably not going to happen, but potentially enabling people to see across the relevant moral divides for purposes of at the very least understanding that while you might disagree, the position on the other end might at the very least kind of form a coherent whole that has some theoretical integrity and thereby make for a more constructive and possibly slightly less divisive debate. Okay, um, I'm Anna Killick. I'm at the University of Southampton, and uh, my background is that I've worked in the NGO sector and also as a school teacher. And I've come back to um, University of Southampton to do a PhD in understanding the economy and how people understand the economy. So that's how I'm sort of coming into this debate. And um, I just want to start by um, mentioning a, a, a survey, a piece of survey evidence, quite recent, 
from the British Social Attitudes, which um, shows that high-income people in the last few years seem to have shifted to becoming more favourable about the economic effects of migration. Um, but low-income people have not shifted their views on the economic effects of um, immigration. And um, what I'd like to focus on is uh, the, the two words, the economy, um, and what, what goes through people's minds when they hear politicians talking about the economy and also when political scientists and people like the BSA actually ask them that question, do you think immigration damages the economy? Um, and it, it seems to me that as political scientists, those two words, the economy, are about the most neglected words in our whole lexicon. Um, political scientists kind of assume that the economy, as they understand it, is just a neutral term for macroeconomic forces, uh, you know, largely impersonal, to do with production and consumption, and everybody out there understands the economy in exactly the same way as they do. And um, so what I did was an ethnographic study, and that's been, you know, the core of my PhD, and it's difficult to ask people questions about how they define the economy. Um, but um, I've um, gone fairly in depth uh, in a study in the South Coast, actually in Southampton, and um, I had 60 participants from a range of social backgrounds and quite a few of them from occupational group D&E, hard to reach groups. And I've done interviews, discursive interviews, and also focus groups to try and um, get at what pictures go through their minds when they hear politicians or us saying the economy. And essentially, I was surprised at this. I thought, for instance, there might be some striking gender differences, but essentially there seems to be a really, really overwhelming income-based difference. In the high-income people in my study, most of them seemed to define the economy in the way that political scientists do. So they would see uh, the connection between their personal economy and the official economy, uh, a national or a global level, as fairly seamless. And even if they disagreed, I'm thinking of one um, senior ICT manager who disagreed with the current government's economic policies, he still had that sense that he shared with the other high-income participants of the economy as this kind of neutral phenomenon. In contrast, lower income participants, regardless of which political party they supported or which economic policies they supported, seemed to uh, have a much, uh, not to see the economy as neutral. Um, and to either experience dread when they heard the terms or to give quite angry and despairing responses when I asked them to define the economy, like rip off Britain 
and a common refrain of the rich write the rules, which rather suggests that they're not seeing it as about these impersonal forces to quite the same extent. Um, and one sign from looking at all the transcripts, each about an hour long, so 60 transcripts, um, that lower-income people were not really having a sense of ownership about the economy, is that they used those words three times less in these heartfelt interviews about economic issues. Um, and they were also much more uneasy about evaluating their own political behaviour as economic, even if they'd been telling me a load of economic reasons why they'd voted the way they did in the referendum, for instance. So what I sort of also asked them, because I asked them some concrete questions, was the classic British social attitudes question. Um, how, how do you, do you, what do you understand about the effects of immigration on the economy? And there was a similar pattern there, that most of the high-income participants talked about the benefits of immigration to the economy. They used phrases like lively educated workers who we like to employ. Um, whereas the higher income participants were much more concerned. I mean, this is a city that has had a big increase in immigration over the last 10 to 15 years. But the lower income participants were much more concerned about competition for wages, uh, immigration driving down um, their wages and also a sense that if free movement continued, then their employers would keep on going down that casualizing zero hours route that many of them were beginning to experience. So um, there was also something which I could expand on a bit in a minute about why they distrusted economic experts which is obviously links with what both Christopher and Eric um, have been working on as well. And I would say their main resentment at experts, and they're far more thoughtful about experts than Michael Gove, I think, um, is that the economic experts have been both um, too out of touch with their localised conditions, whether localised in Southampton or localised in the unskilled sector, and that, and I'd be really keen to hear from anyone who knows of this, they, they haven't heard of economic studies which authoritatively prove that immigration has not increased zero hours, for instance. You know, so there seems to be that some of the economic studies that should have been done haven't been done. Um, so I just want to end really by saying that some of what uh, I found is tentative. It's obviously also kind of straying into this area about, well, what is economic and what is the difference between economic and cultural? But in general, I just have a hunch that the economy might be becoming more of a contested phenomenon than it has been in the past. Um, so, thank you. Very much. Thank you. I, have, I have a couple of questions.
questions, but did the three of you want to have a chance to come back to each other, make any points to each other at all? Um, well. <laughs> Would you prefer if I... I'm happy for you to start. Why don't you, yeah, why don't you? Okay, well, I, listening to the three of you, I, I was, obviously it seems, to, it seems to me, as someone who's, this isn't my expert area, that all three of you seem to be talking about culture versus economy and the stickiness of the two terms. And I was surprised by how much agreement there was between all three of you. And I, I suppose I would like to hear, is that the case? Are you in, ag are you in agreement? Are, or are there, um, are there areas of disagreement? And I did wonder, um, Christopher, particularly when you were talking about um, delving down further, I thought you were channeling David Goodhart for a minute um, when he was... Uh, <laughs> um, and his arguments about um, why, you know, say, um, the Scandinavian countries have been willing to pay higher taxes for greater welfare. Is, the argument has been, well, that that's because it's for their compatriots. When you have higher immigration, actually the willingness to support a welfare state goes down. And his argument is, say, in the US, the reason there's little support for welfare state is because of racism against black Americans. So white Americans will um, be less willing to support a welfare state. And so when you were describing... Um, some of that, I thought, is this, is this the David Goodhart argument? Or is it not the David Goodhart argument? I, I think it predates David Goodhart. Okay. That's a, that's a point that has been made uh, a while back in the uh, immigration literature. And, and it, might, it might or might not be um, descriptively true, so to speak. I, I don't know. It might be psychologically true that people need that uh, form of um, cohesion to buy into welfare state. Something that a lot of people have pointed out in response to people that have made this argument in the, in the philosophical literature on immigration is that it does seem that there are cases where there is not a terrible amount of cohesion, at least on the face of it, and yet a successful welfare state. So, uh, so I'm not, I'm just not sure how much kind of a empirical weight I would put on that argument. And quite, quite independently of whether it's psychological too, there is of course the moral question whether whether there is any merit to that type of attitude on the part of, on the part of citizens, which would be a different uh, discussion, I suspect. Maybe, maybe Goodhart wants to make two point and one there. So, so how do you differentiate yourself from, from that argument? So are you making the moral argument? Is that what your next step is, to make the moral argument? The moral argument that people should promote cohesion for purposes of promoting a welfare state? Or, or, or you're, say, you're saying that um, a nativist point of view is questionable from a moral point of view, or...? Uh, no, I don't think I'm saying that either. I think I'm, I'm saying neither. I mean, I, I think there, there's... I, I would be skeptical about the empirical point that a welfare state requires that type of racial cohesion. Eric might have other things to say about that. I would be skeptical about that from an empirical point of view. Um, as for the moral point of view, I think there are... Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a... It's a very long uh, philosophical discussion with strong arguments on both sides. Uh, roughly kind of coming down on the one hand, some form of universalists feeling that, um, that essentially um, national borders are morally irrelevant. Uh, they might serve some practical purpose in terms of, for purposes of seeing to it that every, everyone gets taken care of by someone if they fall on hard times. But fundamentally, they're morally irrelevant. Two, on the other hand, some form of particularists who might feel that whether, whether we have a moral obligation to look out for those that might be close to us and look like us and so forth, 
we at the very least they would feel ha have a right to exercise such uh, privileging if we want to do that. Right? So those are the kind of two established philosophical positions on the matter. And, uh, and I don't necessarily have a settled view on, on who is correct there. And that sounds like the core question, though, that seems to be governing a lot of politics, the political debate at the moment. You yes, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> you, wanted to, you wanted to come in. Well, just on the, on the research on this issue of solidarity, diversity, I think it's interesting because you have different geographical scales. It's very important. So we know that at the neighborhood level, more diversity equals lower trust. But that's only at the neighborhood level. That relationship has not been shown at the national level. Because actually, to get from the neighborhood level to the national level requires some kind of political mobilization. The other thing we know is that it also depends on which groups are rich and poor. So if the majority is poorer than the minority, they're not going to be, they're going to want redistribution. And if they're richer than the minority, then they won't. And so we see both relationships. So it's not a simple. I was just going to say um, that one of the things that I think would be really interesting and there's been some research on different types of immigrants and whether for instance people prefer immigrants who've got skills or not got skills but in, in a context of say this city on the south coast it was quite important whether they thought people were coming here to work to earn a lot of money and then go back so there was a sense there that um, they weren't putting as much into the country or making that kind of long-term commitment. And I've sort of been looking as to whether there's been research that probes that. And I don't know if anyone else knows. There'll be survey data on it, right? Yeah. Okay. But yeah, British Future find contribution. Yeah. yeah. So they, and I, yeah. I think that would be an aspect of whether people, but it kind of falls between kind of contribution integration in some way. Yeah. Um, but um, but it'd be certainly consistent with that. Mm. I, finally, I wondered if there was a tension between your findings, Anna, and Eric's, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that your findings seem to be really that this at the, at the very heart of this is economics rather than culture and how people. It, people experience, um, how people experience and interact with the economy, yeah. um, but that you need to operationalize that in quite a nuanced way, whereas my impression from Eric's is actually, it doesn't matter, rich or poor, you, yeah. you, the, the key thing is your cultural attitudes, and I wonder if, if, if you're just in disagreement, if the empirical research, the quantitative large-scale surveys just show different things from the qualitative on the ground, or actually if there is more agreement, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, I think there might be some, um, but uh, my research was only asking them how they understood the economy. So what I'd really like to do as the next stage is have similar research where I'm saying, how do you understand the economy and how do you understand the subject of immigration and how economic was your vote in the referendum and also how do you understand the cultural side of immigration and how non-economic, perhaps, do you think your vote was? Um, so my research was incomplete in that sense. And even though I was only asking people how they understood the economy, they were certainly, some of them, giving me quite a lot of cultural opposition to immigration back. 
okay, so they, you know, they weren't holding back those who felt really strongly that they that, that English wasn't being spoken enough in the street and all that kind of thing. However, I, what I wonder is when the British Social Attitudes asks them, do you think immigration damages the economy? I think a low-income person experiences more of a disjuncture and almost a dissonance because what that's going through their mind is do they mean my economy, my local economy, which I really do think has been damaged, or are they talking about the official version of the economy that I'm hearing on the news and some of them will be aware enough to know that the economic consensus by the experts is that immigration doesn't damage. So I'd be quite interested as to whether you think survey data actually underestimates economic concerns. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a sort of quantitative survey data fundamentalist by any stretch, and I think, you know, I'm very much in favor of mixed methods, so I definitely would encourage your kind of research to find out what people mean when they answer these questions. So that's a, and the other thing I would say is that there is clearly an economic, certainly on the Brexit vote, not on, I, I'm not sure there's any impact on the Trump vote, but on the Brexit vote, we can see 10 to 15 points. So the people who were poorer really did have a higher tendency to vote Brexit. So there is an economic effect, regardless, even if it is smaller than the cultural effect, it's still a, a very important thing to study. So I don't want to minimize that. I just want to try and, I was sort of making the more macro point that it seems to me in the cross-national data that, that the kind of cultural t seems to be more important. Another thing also to be aware of, I guess, is, and this comes out more in political psychology, is that the, what people verbalize as the reasons for their opposition may not necessarily be the actual reasons. So there's this kind of concept of the elephant and the rider so that yes. people are kind of driven by these kind of unconscious forces and they're rationalizing and telling themselves a story all the time. And so, uh, I mean, I, I remember asking a question just in a small sample, you know, how important do you think pressure on council housing is as a problem in Britain on a zero to 100 scale? It gets about a 47 or a 48 and all you have to do is drop in a few words, immigrants putting pressure on council housing, just two mm. words, and it goes from 48 to about a 70. Now, it's obviously impossible for the immigration portion of that problem to be bigger than the problem, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't make any sense. So something's going on there, and I suspect it might be this subconscious dynamic, which can be expressed economically, can be, so, so it can still be expressed economically, but it can ultimately a source, I would say, is probably not necessarily in material conditions. We can have that debate. Can I take um, some questions from the audience? Any more? A couple to start? Yeah, so I've got, I've got this gentleman here and gentleman here, do you want to start? Yes, um, I'm here to come with a question. Is immigration movement the economy being repeated in various surveys? Well, the basic fact is, if you increase one of the, uh, uh, the elements of production, i.e. labour, GDP will go up. You increase one factor of production. So the answer is almost certainly yes. So what is not so certain is does per capita go up? But that question doesn't seem to be answered. Slightly hinted at here. Now, I 
be insulting and saying, why a cretinous question like that to me? I would ask in the first place. But is the most attractive question I have is, are the people saying yes, people who cream off the top? So when GDP goes up, they're better off. I'm especially talking about the government workers. And other people responding negatively, even though the economy is growing, they're under wage pressure, housing pressure, education pressure. So life is getting much worse for their own personal economy. Do the people saying yes or no, do they reflect that kind of divide or am I just making it up? I was going to take the next question, but I think you want to answer. Oh, that's yeah. fine. Either. Yeah, OK. Um, do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I was interested in this thing of culture versus economics, but obviously the USA and the UK have different historical attitudes towards their economy. So when we talk about Trump, is he going from a liberalized? the ideas of liberalism that was set by Truman in 1947. I'm going back to the idea of a protectionist, isolationist tradition of manifest destiny. And with the Brexit, is the UK going back to a more a sort of a, away from the neoliberalism when they joined with the common market and kind of going back to this sort of mythical idea of the British Empire with its mercantile protectionist identity. Um, there's a lot in this, I'm trying to say this at the end. Um, I think that's a clear question. Yeah, uh, but with the Brexit, are we also dealing with issues of masculinity and working class industrial traditions that have declined with the advancement of a global, of, well, of neoliberalism. And I see this kind of, well, in a sort of a light way from what was happening in the interwar years when there were these same issues. But what's different is that there is no longer a colonial period going on and that it's a mixture of a myth, the mythologizing of a past that has come with the populist right and the changing face of the economic neoliberal idea which ironically the former colonies such as China, Africa, Latin America and the Middle East is trying to propagate to increase its own economic agenda internationally. And there's one more question. How does I've got the first question. I've lost the second one, so I think that's because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, did you want to, because you wanted to respond oh, to Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, so I think uh, just a point on, is immigration good for the economy? Um, maybe I think um, Anna's points about exactly how understand the economy is a good one. And I think also, I, I don't, uh, my guess would be any, anyone who seriously studied the economic impact of immigration uh, would answer the question, um, 
is the economic impact of immigration positive with a simple yes or no, right? So the kind of stuff people have been looking at would be, uh, for example, impact on jobs, on wages, on houses, on uh, rates of poverty, overall fiscal, and so forth. And in every case, it is, uh, it is rarely a simple yes or no. I think if there is any kind of overall trend, is that whatever, some, some, some of these have been studied more than others, right? Uh, so for example, housing and poverty, not as much, but say fiscal and, and, and jobs and wages more so. But I think that the interesting thing is that along all these metrics, and even depending on exactly how you slice the data, the effect, if there is one, sometimes there's simply no significant effect, is surprisingly small, either positive or negative. And you would expect from a topic that gives rise to such strong disagreement that there would be some kind of hard-hitting effects one way or the other. But it doesn't seem to be. Um, yeah, that's right. In my understanding, no. So, for example, immigrants seem to use, as I remember, you guys might remember differently, but as I remember it, I think immigrants uses social housing about at the same rate. Yeah, social housing they've been looking at. So what I don't think people have looked at is the influence of, of uh, high earners coming in to buy property. Or sometimes an impact on the low, on the private rented market. Yeah. Um, well, we, yeah. we know, for example, that in London, 40% of the immigration has been accommodated through crowding. So, in a way, the footprint might be lower if there's 14 to a house than if there's two to a house. So there are all those kinds of. Th I know I've seen one study on that. So it's it's, it's a kind of a complicated mm -hmm. phenomenon. Did, 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 was that the? Did you want to come back to the other question? Well, I'll just. Well, okay, I'll just say something about um, protectionism. And Trump, uh, because I think, yes, you know, the, you're, you got your finger on something that, which is true that Trump, in a way, does represent a break from the neoconservative, neoliberal paradigm, uh, and is in that tradition of more isolationism, which was there in the 1920s in the U.S. So, to some extent, a reversion to that 1920s style politics, which included uh, hostility to immigration. So that. You know, historically, I do think we can see a parallel to the 20s, not the interwar fascist period. I think that's over, overdrawn, but I do think that the 20s for sure. Any other responses? Just to say as well that there was one study by the Bank of England um, in 2015 which looked at the effect of immigration on different skill sectors, so different occupational sectors. Um, and uh, that did show that there was more of a negative effect in the unskilled service sector. Um, so that's an example of how I think economic evidence needs to be targeted at different job sectors and local areas to really speak to people um, and engage them in, you know, what effect immigration is having. But I think it came out a very small effect. Well, it was 2%, I think it was a, if, if, if there was a 10% increase in the proportion of immigrants, there would be a 2% reduction 
in wages in that sector, which is small, but it's, you know, it's still that sense that they feel that if there is a price, yeah. they're paying it. That's um, right. That's okay. Yeah. You say it's small, mm. but if you're down at the bottom, mm. it's large. Mm. You're on the mm. red line. Mm. And also, have we got minimum wage in this country? So what's happened is we've been straight down. But the thing is, though, the we don't find that the poorest are the most hostile to immigration or the most likely to vote for the populist right. So we would, I mean, if it was an economic thing, we would expect them to be the ones driving no, Brexit. No, I wouldn't expect that at all. Because if you're, if you're driven down to the bottom when you're on welfare, you can't get any low. So it doesn't matter. You can just pile on the meat. It doesn't matter. You're at the bottom. It stops you rising up. But you're down the bottom. It won't affect you that much. The people that actually are the middle, the sort of semi-skilled skilled, like carpenters. Day rates for carpenters as carpenters. Yeah, um, can, can I um, be a bit naughty and just give a slight answer to your question about masculinity? Because you would think, um, with Brexit, that gender would play a really important role. And if you went back and looked at data from 2001, and Eric was making the point about the salience of immigration, when, when there hadn't been the um, wave of immigration from the accession states, actually only a very small minority of the British population rated immigration as a very important issue. And that group tended to be um, young men, 18 to 24 year old men, much more than anyone else. But what's been interesting over time is that that gender difference has really massively disappeared. And if you look at attitudes to immigration and attitudes to Brexit, there's really no gender difference. So there was a massive change where, from a kind of minority, quite masculine concern, this actually became a very mainstream concern. But I saw two other hands for questions here. Sarah and Deborah, anyone else? I have a question for Anna, but it might speak to the others, maybe more directly. But I was wondering to see in your focus groups and whether you put particular prompts in front of your participants that maybe challenge or explored their rationale because when you were talking about the expansion of zero hours, I was just interested, just made me wonder whether that was a perception of an expansion of zero hours, or was it something they were actually experiencing in their local um, work or in their local community, or was it in some way reflecting the increasing debate about zero hours? So I just wondered whether you, what you had done creatively in your focus groups, and would that help answer that sort of question? Deborah? I was, I was just wondering if anybody wanted to comment on the the, um, the way in which the uh, discussion about Brexit has often highlighted education as a as a ex explanation for different views about Brexit, and and what and what one infers from that. Um, I was just reading it's only a working paper um, that argued that actually you could make the education effect disappear with information about skills. And it seems to me, if you really did do that, you would be saying something quite different, saying, basing views about Brexit on people's skill level has rather different connotations to saying it's related to people's education level. It, it relates much more to what you're saying about where you are in the labor market and how, how you see yourself rather than, uh, I mean, education has all these other connotations about well, how much stuff do you know? And also cultural connotations. So I just wondered if you, Anyone would like to comment on the education variable as an explanation of things at least? So um, we had a question for Anna. Did you want to respond and then? Um... 
Well, on the, on the focus groups, um, I did in interviews first and, and then um, focus groups, and it, it, I, did, I didn't have any props apart from asking them about their economic life histories, which is a really fascinating thing to do, um, and then also asking them about a few concrete aspects of the economy, because I think all of us would sort of dry up after about two sentences of trying to define it. And one of the aspects was employment. And so I just asked very open questions. What do you understand about employment? And they came up with either friends and family in zero hours, in a couple of cases, them in zero hours, uh, fear of zero hours, I'd say, uh, as well. Um, and that would be the main point, I think, on that. Um, but if I can just start on the um, educational skills, because I just think that education is fascinating here. And, um, you know, again, there's lots of different studies which say that education may be making a difference to people's beliefs and attitudes. But it's such a huge subject as to whether education is um, giving people a liberal worldview or whether it's more in a way what Deborah's saying that um, if you reach a certain level of education then you expect material benefits you perhaps project yourself forward into a higher income bracket and what I found very interesting from from my study was that I, I, I did feel that low-income participants who have not had education, who don't have those expectations, it's almost like a sort of a, a, an identity to, to, to then um, see immigration in this very, uh, as a more damaging phenomenon. I do wonder whether if you are a low-income person whose parents perhaps are anti-immigration and you go to university, whether you kind of expect that you've got to transition to then be accepted into what you know is the sort of official pro-immigration mentality. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating um, idea, and I think it would be worth exploring in the focus groups. I mean, I think that, you know, just again, looking at the literature on this, um, there's no question that you find universally that people with university degrees are more liberal on immigration than those with less than grade school. Um, why is that? I think there's sort of different explanations. Um, one, but one of the explanations, that there have been a few papers on this, one of the explanations is that people who, are, who have that more exploratory kind of personality or value system are more likely to wind up in higher education. And there's, I, there's quite a fascinating study that actually suggested a lot of this is sorting rather than the impact. Because actually, if you look at the content of what's taught in a university, it's not like people are being preach certain value. I mean, it does occur in certain areas of academic life, but generally speaking, why would, especially if you're in the sciences, I mean, I know the effect is not as, as great. So I, I, I think a lot of this is, is self-selection before people even, so one study looked at people's attitudes at age 13 and, and then tracked them at age 18 and found that a lot of it could be predicted at age 13. Uh, 
Others say university makes some difference. Uh, but I, I guess I would tend to see this more in terms of those values and worldviews. But part of it, too, could be identity. So you're identifying with your credentials rather than with ascribed characteristics. Would the same point apply to skills, then? So, well, yeah, I, I'd have to read the paper. So would education just track skill? That, like, how would, how so would that's, that yeah, out? I mean, I guess the, the, the obvious question there is if it is skill, first, how is skill being measured, and why isn't that translating into income, given that we might expect income and skill to be closely aligned? Well, it was education. It was education, yeah. but I mean, if, if it is really a sort of a material skill which can be translated into a, you would have thought that skill would have a higher value in the market. So we should see the income effects overwhelming the straight education. But I, I, I would be very but, interested in seeing the pain. But what did that go against the first slide you had up? Which was So the, if the story you just gave is correct, then right. that doesn't really jive with the first slide, right? Because then you would expect those to come apart more. If, yeah, if skill... If education tracks income right, or right. skill. Yes, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So if education tracks skill, which leads to higher incomes, we should see the income effect dominating. So I've got three more questions, four more questions for people who haven't answered a question yet. So um, you were first. On the five. So if you could keep them short, that would be really helpful, please. They've got one, two, three, four, and David over there, five. So would you like to start, sir? I just wondered if you'd encountered or had any broad thoughts on significant number of recent immigrants who are for more stringent immigration control, especially those who um, supported Brexit. And gentleman in front of me? Yeah, uh, it's really about the, the framing. We've been focusing on immigration, and immigration is free movement of people. In Europe, there are four things that are interwoven, free movement of goods, services, people, and capital. We focus on goods and people. But actually, the other two are almost silent. And it seems to me, particularly when you look at the free movement of capital, uh, there's no discussion, there's no debate. And of course, if you have capital, you can buy political power. And therefore, you can just keep on having more power, and you get into many of the kind of economic problems that we've seen. Okay, so and I'm we've just got wondering the framing, what's behind the framing that we're focusing on just two or four interwoven factors. Nice question, thank you. Gentleman here. Sorry, not you behind you. Yeah. Uh, I just wondered, um, the, the, your, your questions about um, people's attitude to the economy, did you ask about the global financial crisis? Because um, there, it certainly seems to me that that has really damaged the um, reputation of economists and economics. Okay, so once we leave the EU, the government will have control over EU and non-EU immigration, maybe after the um, transition period. When that happens, or if that happens, might that shift lower income earners' views on immigration to being more disposed of it? Because one of the issues is that, oh, well, we don't have control of who comes in, but we will. Well, That's that interesting point. David? I was struck by the fact that none of you are talking about politics, at least in the way I see it. Um, you haven't talked about what politicians might do with the 
points you're raising, assuming that's not true. Um, and more specifically, about political leadership. Uh, neither Eric or Chris talked about political leadership. Does it make any difference if political leaders talk in a particular way? Do they lead? Do they have any influence over people's attitudes towards migration? Thank you. So we've got five quite meaty questions there. How about do begin answering them? Can I say briefly? Yeah. Eric and Anna might have more to say, but about the support for immigration restrictions among immigrants, depending a bit on how you define that term. So the only the only stuff I'm aware of is that it seems uh, recent immigrants tends to oppose restrictions, and then once you stay and you assimilate. <laughs> Then you uh, then you start to uh, embrace the same type of restrictions that uh, other natives have been embracing all along. That's that's uh, the only. There might be other stuff out there that I'm not familiar with, but that's the only one I've seen uh, regarding immigrants. Immigration well, I mean, just yeah. I mean, I think that's right, and, and I just come in on. I mean, we, the statistics are, you know, on Brexit. For example, certainly we have ethnic minority. Brexit, an ethnic minority Brexit vote of about 32, 33%, something like that. It's, it, there's a significant, and similarly with the Trump vote, you had a sort of almost 30% Latino vote for Trump. And, and we know that from something called Proposition 187, which was held in California, which was a kind of anti, was about cutting off benefits to social, access to social services for illegal immigrants, that about a third of Latinos voted for that at about 50, I think, Roughly 50% of Asian Americans now. So it, it is certainly there, uh, and it does need more study, I think. Uh, but it's 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 also true that immigrants and minorities tend to have a lower level of opposition to immigration than white majorities in Western countries. Could I just say um, something about the um, global financial crisis? Because in um, my interviews, where I wasn't really leading them to that, it was really striking how often they mentioned it. So we're now 10 years on, um, and anybody who was old enough to have remembered it really mentioned it and still felt very angry about it. And it was the bank bailout, and we've paid twice. And, you know, the government has not curbed the banks and they could do it again, and, and a sense that that really has been one of the key factors in damaging their trust in economic expertise. So, uh, you know, I think it's such a powerful influence on people. Just there's a couple of questions here. One on the idea of taking back control and whether when post-Brexit Britain has control, will that make a difference uh, to attitudes to immigration? I mean, my view is that it won't make much difference. So I don't actually think the debate was about control in a way. And if we look at, at other countries that are having issues around immigration, I mean, if you look at Australia, if you look at the United States, I mean, that, whether, I mean, US, of course, has the issue of the southern border. But even in the case of uh, countries with control, I think the issue I would think the issue would be mainly numbers. So, and in Britain, you can see with the non-EU immigration, that even without, even forgetting about the EU immigration, actually the non-EU immigration was a major issue. Um, so, I'm not convinced much is. I'm not convinced Brexit, Brexit's going to be the answer to this issue. Um, 
Well, you want to? Well, I was thinking, I mean, it, it, is, it is pretty interesting, because you certainly get, as we mentioned, there's certainly work that, that stresses, or that suggests that sense of control is important in people's mind. Mm -hmm. Whether that, in fact, is what's driving the attitude is a different question, but it's certainly something that people articulate. Um, but it would, I mean, if you, if you think about it in the context of, of the larger research, it's, it's a bit surprising, because so, so, so we do know that people tend to um, be more opposed to immigration from countries that are perceived to be culturally very different and racially very different from, from the country you're in, right? So from that point of view, it would seem that the UK, for example, is, is well-placed to, since it has supposedly full control over, over non-EU uh, immigration at present, um, that would seem a bit surprising then that the control argument would apply specifically to EU migration. It's not, it's not strictly speaking inconsistency, it's just a bit surprising that you would think that if people come from Scandinavia or France or Germany or Italy, um, those are countries that are culturally and racially quite similar to the UK. But um, I don't know. Sorry. Um, really what? If I could just say um, about um, control that uh, I, I do think we should keep on doing ethnographic studies into the future of how people um, interpret that two-word term, the economy, because um, there's a big literature on things like depoliticization, which suggests that um, the last 10, 20 years have possibly made people just feel that all, all the talk about we've got to have a an open globalizing econ economy where there's a lot of competition and we don't have as much money for, for welfare um, has possibly alienated people from... Is this the capitalism point? Yeah, this is, the, this is just a broader point about mm. control, I suppose, that people feel the economy is out of control and that politicians have used it too much as something that is an excuse for policies which people then feel damage them in some way. So I, I, I'm, I think that might be something that we need to keep looking out for. Um, we haven't had answers, although I think that was a kind of answer to the capitalism question, but specifically on capitalism and political leadership, any? Mm. I was thinking about the leadership one, I'm not. I mean, I think, I think the, the work you do in economy, economy is very important. I think what's interesting is that it seems that the people you're talking to are picking up on the idea that um, the economy is not apolitical, right? That economy is at bottom. Uh, extremely political because yeah. you think about the economy there's a question of who is supposed to get what mm. and that's a that's a deeply political question mm. it's arguably the political question mm. how things are to be allocated and of course if you if you pick up on the fact that the way the economy is used in this neutral way you pick up on that fact and you resent it then you picked up on the fact that it's a political tool to suggest that really there's just a sign to us just, just just leave it to us and so forth. And, um, and that's interesting. And the people maybe that don't pick up on that are simply people who aren't maybe at the kind of rough end of the relevant deals. Mm -hmm. So that might be why. 
but, uh, but yeah, no, I think it's we did some we did some pre-screening on when we were doing our focus groups on on the economy, and we found um, that people completely reasonably didn't know what the economy was, yeah. and um, and I don't really know what it is either. No. Uh, but people know what jobs are, and people know what wages are. So we simply rephrased everything in those terms, and then people um, understand. And I don't think I don't think that at all speaks to kind of skill levels or anything. I think that's just a. Again, I think it's a very the notion of the economy. That's a very puzzling thing. Um, jobs and wages slightly easier to get a grasp on, but pretty tricky as well. So I think kind of probing that space is is extremely. Uh, have to be very fruitful. I'll just say something about David's uh, very important question. And, and the answer is yes, politics really does matter. <laughs> so, um, not surprising. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think actually a good case for that is the US because, I mean, it, in a way, it's hard to pinpoint, but certainly party queuing. So if you look at the Republicans and Democrats, uh, Republican supporters and Democrat supporters are now massively polarized on immigration. Whereas prior to 2012, but especially prior to 20, 2008, they basically had the same views on immigration. So you're seeing this massive polarization. Now, almost half of that is switching and realignment, uh, but also the messaging of the parties has changed the opinions of people to some extent on this question. Um, so the, the parties do matter. I would say if you look at Europe and what's happened, particularly with the migrant crisis, I'm not as convinced that political parties have been as critical, have, have been as crucial. But in the US case, I think you can certainly see that the, the decision of the congressional Republicans starting around 2014 to politicize and make immigration a bigger part of their political offer, and then particularly post-Trump primary 2015 the profile on that issue has really increased dramatically. Uh, but I think also the, the, the media is playing a part in this as well. So the right-wing media also shifted considerably in the US. So, so, sorry, so, so, so what is the reason to believe that the causal error goes in that direction? Well, right. Let's say primarily, um, surely there's. Right, so we, we can look at, we, well, all we have is, you know, we ask people, who did you vote for in 2012? Who did you vote for 2016? Yeah. So we know that a lot of people who voted, you know, the, the proportion of people who voted Romney who were anti-immigration is considerably lower than the proportion who voted Trump. And then we can, we can look at people who voted for both Romney and Trump, and then people who voted for Romney but not for Trump. So we kind of look at who switched and who was cued by the Republicans. See, I don't know if that's obvious from where I'm cued. So we, we can look at someone who, and what we see is there's a lot of people who um, switched who were maybe Obama voters who went to Trump. And immigration was a big predictor of who made that switch, say, from Obama to Trump or the other way around. So we can look at the switching, but also the people who, were, who voted Romney in 2012 and, and Trump in 2016 yeah. and look at their change. So that's a queuing rather than a switching. Right. So. So would that be incompatible with kind of opportunistic party positioning? I mean, it wouldn't be inconsistent with it, but... Well, I don't know. I guess because they voted both for <coughs> Romney and for Trump. 
you know, we can go back to 2012. So, yeah. so this is the other thing. We can go back to 2012 and see what their answers were, yeah. what the correlation was with immigration, Romney voting. Yeah. And then we can go to 2016 and see the people who said they voted for Romney in 2012 yeah. and their opinions on immigration compared to Methodology. Um, do we have any final burning questions before we wrap up? So I'm only going to take them from the people I haven't heard from so far. So I think there's just one, this, this um, lady here. The media's effect was on attitudes to immigration, and if you think there's an effect, how can you tell the causal direction? Like, if the media affects the attitudes, or if they just, if the coverage is because there's increasing attitudes. Well, well, okay. There's there's a classic study that showed that when Fox Cable was laid, um, that you saw an increase in Republicans. It was bundled in with. With, a, with another set of ca you know, various cable channels. So you could prove that media had an, had an effect there. Unfortunately, we don't have other natural experiments like that. So all we know is that, yes, Daily Mail readers are more anti-immigration. Um, and it's impossible to tell the causal arrows, although I am putting in a bid for a research grant which might come through to study that very question. So it's a very crucial question, because media is huge in all this. Yeah. Well on that note, and, um, I'd like to thank our speakers for a really fascinating, um, a fascinating debate, and thank you all for coming. Thank you very much. Oh, well done. That was good. <laughs>